Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you today. My next guest is Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist. And what he does is he looks into the ancestral past, our ancestral past, and tries to bring that into the modern day and help everybody out in a nutrition and lifestyle way. Paul. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about what you do on a day to day basis and how you go about your work. Oh my goodness! Uh, it, it's changed a lot over the like the last um, couple of years because our our kids are seven and nine now, and the year before COVID descended upon us, we started homeschooling. There was kind of some variety of reasons that went into that. Uh, we were we were contemplating maybe doing some significant traveling, and so we kind of three things up. So I usually get up, um, do a meditation. Um, started doing that about four years ago and that was really a life-changing thing uh, emily fletcher stress less accomplish more like her whole program just stuck with me i had i had tinkered with like the sam harris stuff and everything and nothing had really gelled and i don't know if emily's material was the thing that i needed or i was so desperately in need of meditation at that point that it was like okay you're going to do this now you know but um I'll do a 15 minute meditation and I really try to get on my, my work straight out of the gate. And as much as I can, I try to do my creative stuff early because to the degree um, my cylinders are going to fire at any given moment, like that's, that's when they, they do pretty well. So I try to do more of the creative stuff in the morning. Like I, I will read research articles. I do actually I guess survey my email because I'm fortunate to be on a couple of different research groups. And so people will share research articles and musings about, you know, health, wellness. Uh, I'm on a couple of like economics threads also. And so people will talk about like big kind of macroeconomic trends and everything. But I, I try to take in some information. And then if I get some inspiration around like an article or maybe a, a podcast, then I'll start stitching that together. Um, I try to get as much of that done as I can before the kids wake up. And once they get up, I start getting breakfast going, um, uh, start moving them through their homeschooling. And my wife and I kind of tag team out on that. I do more of the, the math and science. My wife does more of the language arts uh, material. And um, depending on the day, uh, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That's usually around noon. And so it's kind of a it's a, it's a lot in the morning. I mean, we have, a, a, we're very, very fortunate for the schedule we have, but trying to get some work done, trying to get the kids fed, watered, school, and then we're out the door to jujitsu, two hours of that, come home, feed, water, uh, top off anything we have going on with school. And then the kids usually do either like swimming, horseback riding, or jujitsu in the afternoon. So then we turn around and go do that. And then I try to segment some of my, um, what I consider to be like less creative, lower level stuff for kind of like the afternoon, very early evening. So like I can kind of be smoked. I'm on, I'm on cruise control to some degree. Like it's just standard emails and all that, that type of stuff. And, uh, try to have all that shut down by like five or 6 PM at the latest. And, then it's rinse, lather, repeat, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that something that uh, you've had to build into your life then? Because it's more of a kind of a circadian rhythm sort of thing for you. That is it something that you've decided to do? You've decided to put 
top load your morning with things and then chill out towards the evening? Is that something that you really work towards? Yeah, and I've always tended that way. Like um, I'm kind of more of a morning person, not, not as much of an evening person. If I need to grind on something, I can do it in the evening. But my productivity is like 50% of what it is in the morning. Like every hour in the morning is worth two or three hours in the in the evening, you know. So it's just um, uh, I'm so much more effective with my time. So I, I do that. And, you know, I'm going to turn 50 in January and I feel like I motor along pretty well with with everything, all things considered. But uh, uh, my sleep is just the, the crux of all that. You know, my, my nutrition is sound. I've been tinkering with that for a long time. I've figured out what works for me on that front. But like, if I sleep pretty well, then I can get in and, and get a lot of work done, train at a, a reasonably high level and everything. But if I start getting negative inroads into my sleep quality or the sleep duration, man, the wheels fall off fast. Like I, I just don't last long then, yeah. Maybe you could tell our audience how important sleep really is. I mean, uh, people don't realize that when you do look back into our ancestral past, that sleep was something that was massive. You know, the, the, there wasn't uh, so many things going on back then that a lot of it was they just followed the day. It was when it was dark, it was sleep. When it was light, it was wake up. So how important is it, it to people now to make sure they get the correct amount of sleep? Yeah, and I mean, you could you could tackle this in a couple of different angles if folks are a little more evolutionary biology and like big picture, um, I would say smarter than, than they're going to glom onto this one. I could get into kind of reductionist studies of if you were one hour sleep deprived, one hour per night sleep deprived over a five day period, you are as as cognitively and physically impacted as if you had a blood alcohol content of, of 0.1. You know, it's, it's like you had a drink or two and people don't notice that they're like, oh no, I'm fine because they've habituated to it, but they're really running around a hot mess most of the time. But that stuff is compelling for some people. But what's really interesting to me is evolution has had 4 billion years to sort different things out. And in any complex life form, it sleeps, you know, like some sharks and fishes, even horses, like part of the brain will sleep while the other part of the brain is awake, but the sleep is still this process. And on the one hand, you could argue it's super unproductive and you know, not everything sleeps at night. So, you know, some things are nocturnal, some things diurnal, but everything sleeps in any complex life forms sleep. And you're very exposed to danger it's unproductive. You're, you're not foraging for food. You're not reproducing, you know, I mean, there's all these, these costs associated with it. So there's got to be something really, really important to that story. And, and maybe a, a, a kind of, you know, pop culture thing. Most people are familiar with the Guinness book of world records, you know, like you could jump a rocket motorcycle over the Grand Canyon or, you know, a juggle, flaming chainsaws or what have you, but the Guinness Book of World Records will not entertain um, extended sleep deprivation attempts any longer because the, the last couple of people who've done this, and it's somewhere around nine to 11 days, all of these people have died. They, they make it to eight, nine, 11 days, they go to sleep and they never wake up and they have no idea what happened to them. But, you know, when you, when you compare 
how quickly people can die from something. Clearly, oxygen, you know, we're talking about minutes or, or it's seconds or minutes at, at the most. Water is maybe a day or two, like depending on the environment, but it, you know, that's going to be a pretty important thing. Even somebody who's pretty lean, they've got a couple of weeks, you know, maybe, you know, somebody a little heavier, maybe has multiple months of, of stored calories on their body that they could survive. But it's about eight to 10 days that if somebody is totally sleep deprived, they are going to die from that. We don't even entirely know why, like the whole multiple organ system shut down, the brain just shuts down. Like we, we don't even really fully understand why people die from that. And then short of that, when we just look at the demands of say like shift work, you know, police, military, fire, new parents, what have you, um, it's well understood like the, uh, the, uh, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States at least, they recognize shift work as a known carcinogen similar to smoking, similar to asbestos. It, the, the correlation there is so powerful. This isn't something that you, you need to like torture the data to be like, oh, maybe it increases different cancer rates. Like there's about 13 different cancers that they're like 80% higher in shift workers. And so, you know, there's this acute phase of sleep deprivation that is clearly very, very injurious to people. And then this chronic sleep deprivation story which um, I, I think a lot of people, even though they may not technically be a shift worker, they stay up on their iPhones or their iPads or, or whatever until like midnight and they're supposed to be up at 6 or 7 a.m. And so their sleep quality is very poor. They, they are crunching the sleep quality. Most people should be getting at least eight hours in the rack, probably more like nine hours. And uh, there are a very, very, very few people who legitimately can function well on like four or five hours of sleep. There are folks who train themselves to be able to, to operate at a reasonable level on curtailed sleep. And you think about like uh, surgeons and pilots and stuff like that. But even there, we're recognizing that the, the error rates that these folks make while sleep deprived are just massive. And uh, I'll, I'll shut up here in a minute, but one other interesting um, statistic, something like 85% of excessive force scenarios in policing occur within 48 hours of a shift change. When the, the police officer has changed from the circadian biology that they had to a new to a new schedule. And I tell you what, when my sleep is disturbed, I am the crankiest, most unreasonable person, um, uh, uh, emotional empathy goes out the window. Um, so, I mean, it's a sleep issue, sleep deprivation, sleep curtailment, you know, altered circadian biology. It's massively impactful on our, our society. And it, it's hard to figure out how you, how we walk that back, you know, because we, a lot of our shipping and distribution is dependent on like that third shift that works overnight and whatnot. But I, I think that when we recognize that there's an issue there, then at least we can start taking some mitigating steps. And if nothing else, we should probably um, compensate these shift workers a bit better than what we, we do the other shifts, because it is absolutely taking a toll on those people. 
yeah, I think um, everybody has to look after their own lifestyle in a way and actually realize mm -hmm. that they need the sleep if they are a shift worker or even if they're this kind of person who thinks, okay, I can get by on four or five hours sleep, then like you say, you may be able to do it for a short period of time, but it's going to accumulate and you're going to make mistakes. There's been plenty of studies out there showing people um, cognitively doing tests uh, on eight, nine hours sleep and then doing it on four to five and the margin of error is massive. Now there's something yeah. um, big there going on and we don't quite know what it is, why it is, um, but there is that, like you said at the start, it, we wouldn't have evolved to make sure we got plenty of sleep if we didn't need it. No, and every species yeah. is, is the same across the board. So if you are listening to this and you're thinking, okay, maybe I've got some aspects of my lifestyle nailed down, then think about your sleep. That's probably number one thing that you have to go to because I talk a lot about nutrition, but I'm always aware that along with nutrition comes your lifestyle. And within your lifestyle, sleep is one of the major, major things that you have to make sure that you get right. So if you're thinking, maybe I'm struggling with my nutrition, maybe I'm struggling with my work, maybe I'm struggling to get up in the morning or, or go to bed at night and think about how much sleep you're going and the quality of it. Really pleased you put it like that. And uh, I'm pleased that, like you say, it, it comes from a long way back from, from evolutionary terms, all the way back. We wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been in our makeup if we didn't need it. So that's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, people get fixated, rightly or wrongly, but, you know, what's the optimum protein-carb-fat ratio? What's the optimum workout? What's the optimum this? What's the optimum that? If they're into, like, finances and investing, you know, how do I get the most return on investment? And sleep is, like, the greatest return on investment that you can get from anything because you are so much more effective. And it's counterintuitive because, I mean, our, our days go by quick, particularly you throw in kids and work and, you know, all that stuff. They seem to go by in the blink of an eye. But um, it, I guess the best analogy I have is like, okay, you're, you're going to do one of these like Spartan races. You know, you're going to go obstacle courses and all this stuff. You have a chance to do it with no backpack on or wearing a, a, a 50 kilogram backpack. You know, and sleep deprivation, you just put a 50 kilogram backpack on yourself for every single thing that you do, you know, so um, it, it, it's so easy to dismiss it when we start getting time crunched is the first thing that you've got to, people will tend to jettison, um, there are clearly Maybe points you could, in our lives, uh... you know help people understand how to get better sleep because there's plenty of people out there and I've worked with people as well who said look I would love to get eight nine hours sleep but I just physically can't do it and then we're touching on other aspects of lifestyle where as maybe you could help us understand what things we have to do in our lifestyle to, so that we, it enables us to get these eight and nine hours sleep yeah that's a that's a great point actually giving folks some some actionable things to do um interesting kind of side study they they've taken a good number of people under different circumstances. They take them out in the woods, you know, whether it's backpacking or in a cabin, there's no electricity. When the sun goes down, the lights go out, basically. Maybe there's like candlelight or something like that. People sleep outstandingly in those situations. Like it may take a day or two for these folks to adapt, but pretty quickly they're like, man, the sun goes down and I'm done. And depending on the time of year, if the days are longer, then you tend to wake up earlier. Like you, you get circadian trained. We tend to wake up maybe 30, 40 minutes before the sun comes up. Like that, that seems like a, a pretty reasonable thing that, that tends to happen. It can be a real bugger if you live very far north, but 
So we know circumstances in which we can create like some, some pretty bulletproof sleep. So then we just kind of have to retro engineer from there. And that, that light exposure is a big one. And, and maybe starting in the morning, like ideally, and this is something I struggle with because I do my work early, we should be out in the light, even if the sun isn't directly on us, but generally outdoors, even on a cloudy day, even in a more northern environment, is going to be far, far brighter than any light that we get indoors. And that starts setting up our circadian biology. And if we could be outside throughout the day, what we see is that construction workers, different, different folks who spend the bulk of their day outside, they don't run into the problems that the more indoors people experience, which is that later day light exposure. So for most people, myself, I, I definitely include in this, later in the afternoon, I have to start dialing the lights down. Like I have dimmer switches on my lights. I put on some blue blockers, which are, are red glasses. And so I start pulling out that blue wavelength of light, which tends to keep us awake. People who spend the bulk of their day outside, they're not as influenced by that, which is interesting. Like it's such a powerful circadian in training process to be outdoors throughout the day that it, it, it's not as big a deal. But if we're indoors more often, we need to start winding down, no tablets, no TV, no stimulating activities. Ideally, we, we eat three, maybe four hours before we go to bed. Um, I see some folks, I see both sides of this, like people can, who are tinkering with intermittent fasting, um, they may be fast to go to bed and it benefits their sleep. I see other people where they get this elevated heart rate and they, they, you know, they have problems falling asleep and, and that may be like a sodium and electrolyte issue, which can be addressed separately. But you start thinking about your, your meal timing to kind of optimize sleep. Part of the, the process of falling asleep is a decrease in body temperature. And if we eat a really large meal right before we go to bed, it's difficult for our bodies to cool off and we have to cool off, release melatonin, that whole process. But um, you want to get it kind of serial killer consistent with bedtime versus like ritual where you, you brush your teeth, you, you do this, you do that, you, you know, you, you've got your blue blocks on, you've got your lights dimmed and you try to be as consistent as you, you can in that process. And those are some of the biggies around, um, you know, effective circadian biology. So try to get out early, try to be outside as much as you can throughout the day. Later in the day, start minimizing your exposure to artificial light and then try to eat um, at least a couple hours before bed. And again, some folks find varying degrees of benefit there. Some people find that some carbs later in the day help sleep. Some people find that the carbs later in the day disturb sleep. So I kind of I kind of see both sides of that, but just be open to, to tinkering with that and then be very ritualized around what you're doing with that go-to-bed process. Yeah, I don't think people actually realize that the temperature is a big one as well. If you were to, like, say, take it back to the ancestors where we slept in, in caves and things, it was quite cool at night. And especially us now in the United Kingdom going into wintertime, lots of people have their heating on or their house really, really warm. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes difficult when you go to bed and you say your bed's next to the radiator or the heater and it's really, really warm and you find it hard to get to sleep. So temperature is one that I often say to people, make sure yeah. that your, your bedroom's are a lot cooler, you know, even, even down to two or three, four degrees cooler than, than it is in the daytime. You know, that'll help you go, go to bed. 
And touching on the intermittent fasting that you said, I have come across this as well. Um, whereas a lot of people, when they do intermittent fasting, say they're doing a 16-8 or an 18-6, will tend to do their fasting in the morning. So as soon as somebody new comes to it, they'll go, well, yeah, I've had 16 hours of fasting and then they'll eat their evening meal and then try to go to bed and then struggle with the sleep. I'll say, well, why don't you switch it around and do the eat early yeah. in the morning and then do the intermittent fasting later on in the day? And that can help as well. So if you've reached a, a plateau there or you've found a, a place where you can't sleep very well, then try switch around your intermittent fasting like that. Um, is intermittent fasting something that you promote? Everybody does then. Ish, ish. I, I wrote my first article on intermittent fasting in 2005, and by 2006, I deeply regretted releasing the <laughs> article because this I was um, really early in the CrossFit scene. I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world, and so like that was kind of my my people, I guess. And as wonderful as those folks are, they're just like type A, over the top, and so. You know, these people are training six days a week, sometimes double days. Um, and they, they're like, well, 16 hours of fasting is good. And I'll, I'll do 22 hours of fasting every day. And if uh, keto helped this guy lose 100 pounds and I just want to lean out a little bit more, then clearly keto is the thing I should be doing, even though I'm doing like these massively glycolytic workouts and, and you know, a volume of training that... Um, is actually way above what an ancestral norm would, would be, you know? So I think that, um, I think that there's a, a good suggestion that some amount of time restricted eating is valuable. You know, maybe you do breakfast and I'm more on the eat early, go lighter through later in the day. So like big breakfast, pretty good size lunch, and then maybe optional or, or small dinner. Um, I, I just kind of, tend that way, but I think that there's a massive amount of hype around fasting and there are all these purported health benefits and whatnot, but something that has been missed in this story is we are comparing, most of this has been done in animals and even in the human trials, we're looking at an overweight, sick population, whether human or animal, and we're comparing it to just making them eat less. And I think that this is kind of goofy because if we were to, again, let's just use CrossFit or let's use like um, a pool of Olympic decathletes as, as an example, you know, um, and compare fasting and caloric restriction for health and longevity compared to like a group of Olympic uh, caliber decathletes. I think it's going to look like there's absolutely no effect and probably negative effects on health, longevity, and certainly performance, you know? So what we've been comparing is a sick population of mainly animals and humans eating too much and usually not sleeping well and all these other things compared to eating less of garbage food. And so clearly eating less of garbage food is going to be a win, you know, but then we've, we've uh, extended all these, you know, magical benefits to these, these critters. And there haven't been a ton of studies done, but when animals are fed a species appropriate diet and are calorie restricted or are significantly fasted, they die young. They die younger than even what the, the terrible lab chow diets produce. So um, I think fasting or time-restricted eating is cool in that there are absolutely people who are like, I'm never going to change 
the, the quality of the food I'm eating. I'm gonna eat what I'm gonna eat. But if you tell them, hey, just eat between say like 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., eat what you want, but eat between those hours. And they're like, great, I'll do that. And what oftentimes happens and what, with all that it's introducing is some calorie control. You know, really at the end of the day, they're just eating less. And um, then the person starts feeling better and they start, you know, maybe they're not totally on like a blood sugar roller coaster as badly. They start redraining some, some metabolic health. And then I do find that somebody's like kind of tough, tough case client, like, okay, I'll start adding some more protein because I notice when I eat more protein that I feel even better and I'll ditch some of the refined carbs. And, you know, so for some people, the qualitative drive, you know, like getting into paleo or keto or something, they're just never going to do it as the first whistle stop. Um, everybody has been told to eat less, exercise more, and almost nobody's able to do that. But this time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, there seem to be a lot of people that they're like, I can do that. You know, you're not taking away any of their favorite foods. It's kind of minimally impacting their social life. Um, that, that's maybe the one downside of um, eating big in the morning and then lighter in the evening is that people tend, it's easier socially to skip breakfast. You know, um, even within my, my family, I like doing breakfast, lunch, dinner with my, my girls, but at the end of the day, like dinner is kind of the more important meal to, to be really present for like breakfast where everybody's still sleeping and we're just kind of getting things going. So that, that's maybe one, one downside to. Yeah. That, I think, I think reading, like but, you say, yeah. um, what, what it's the same sort of thought process as, as myself is that fasting can be a tool. You can use fasting as a tool, intermittent fasting as a tool. Some people need it, need that intervention and, and need that, that goal of intermittent fasting to be able to step away from wherever they are, say they're on a, a processed food diet and something like mm -hmm. intermittent fasting is going to immediately change what they do, their thought process, how they go about eating, um, especially if they've been snacking a lot and things like that, it'll immediately just shorten that window and give them something better to aim for. But as in, is intermittent fasting great for everybody? No, I agree with you. I think that there is people out there that it's not going to benefit or they're going to find very little benefits from it, especially athletes um, that are looking for performance gains. Maybe they need to, to eat more of the correct food, you know, get, get more yeah. nutrition, get more nutrients from the correct food. So by limiting the time where you can eat, then you're obviously limiting the time when you can get the nutrition into you as well. So there is, yeah. everybody's different. You know, what we're trying to get across today is that um, when there's not a one size fits all, everybody's different. You, you may be at times in your, your lifestyle and your nutrition, yeah, you're going to maybe want to visit keto. You're going to maybe want to visit carnivore, paleo, or intermittent fasting, anything like that. But is it right for you at this particular time? That's what you've got to work out either for yourself or, or have a word with somebody and try and work that out. Is there, though, one thing that potentially, because I always try and simplify it, I always try and get to the basics of, of things, even though, like we say, everyone's different, but um, is there maybe one thing that people can try and focus on that would immediately give their nutrition a boost? I, 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 I super appreciate your perspective and uh, I, I think we're very synergistic. So uh, everybody loves confirmation bias. It's like, oh, the, you know, Matt's, Matt's along the same. So clearly we're right, you know, so maybe we're either both suffering this, uh, you know, mass hypnosis deal or psychosis, but uh I think that if there was kind of one, now the vegan folks would push back against this potentially. Um, even some people in the keto space are afraid of protein. But when I look at the 
evidence-based literature, you know, around sustainable dietary change and the stuff that really, really moves the needle, it's protein and it, it's dense protein sources. And I think getting about a gram of protein per pound of body weight as an upper end and then a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass as a lower end, like that's kind of some bracketing that, that one could do. Um, magic happens with that. And, you know, we, as part of our Healthy Rebellion community, it's a group of people that we have. It's a, a paid community that folks go into and we do three or four resets a year where we focus on sleep, food, movement, and community. And people pick a goal. Usually it's body composition related, but not infrequently it's something else. But there are folks that have followed my work for 10 years, 12 years. I read all your books. I do all this stuff. I've, I've eaten paleo. And they had some benefit, but they're, they're still kind of struggling with body composition in particular. And when we, I'm not a huge fan of weighing and measuring food for extended periods of time, but I think like a week is a really good, like, oh, wow, it's a, it's a big eye opener to a person we never ever ever see people struggling with body composition who are eating adequate protein we never ever ever see people struggling with body composition who are overeating protein it does not happen you know so if it and the, really the big thing with this is that protein is highly satiating there's this thing called the uh, uh, protein leverage hypothesis it suggests that most organisms eat to a protein minimum, whether even grazing animals like clover tends to be more protein dense and nutrient dense than like grass. And so animals eating, you know, herbivores eating clover, they will, they will tend to get fuller on that quicker. And uh, virtually all organisms follow this process. Apparently the only organisms that don't are, are legit carnivores that they, they, the protein leverage hypothesis doesn't really work quite the same way as, as omnivores and even herbivores. But if we eat adequate protein, we just tend to be satiated. We tend not to be as hungry. And the inverse of that, if we under eat protein, we will tend to eat more calories from either protein or excuse me, carbs or fat, or more typically the combination of carbs and fat. And so this is kind of that one stop shop. Like if, if a person were to focus on say like two big takeaways, eat adequate protein, try to avoid liquid calories like the plague, like sodas and juice. And I mean, at, at the end of the day, even alcoholic beverages, like if somebody's going to have a cocktail, I would prefer to see them do like clear spirits versus like beer or even most wines and, and certainly like mixed drinks that are, are really sugary. And if people just do those two things, magic happens with the rest of their, their you know, their biology and their, their physiology and, and particularly their body composition. Yeah. I think the question I get quite a lot is, well, I'm still hungry. I still crave things. I still want things. I'm hungry. So like you, I put the answer out there and say, well, you're missing your protein. If you're still hungry, then I question, are you getting enough protein? And, and a good thing I would say is keep that food diary, you know, like you say, even for a week yep. or two weeks, just keep that food diary. And then it really opens people's eyes into what they are actually consuming because they'll tell you one thing. Um, this is why epidemiological studies are, are a lot of rubbish because they'll tell you one thing and then they'll write down something else and they'll, they'll list it down right. and you'll be like, well, you told me this, but you've written down this and you can see that they're not getting enough protein and nutrition. And one of the stumbling blocks I always find is, is how to do that, how, how to get the most amount of protein into somebody's nutrition because 
it is so difficult. I mean, even myself, sometimes you get bored of eating the same foods all the time, especially, you know, if you're having a plate full of two or three steaks at a time, you're thinking, well, I could just do with a different kind of tasty. I could just do with, with something different. How do we kind of change people's perspective on what they could be putting on their plate so that they could maximize their protein intake? Yeah, and this is a really good question. And if I if I can string this together, I, I think it's kind of a cool solution. But palate complexity becomes a challenge for people. So part of my my second book, Wired to Eat, I talked about this guy, Adam Rickman, who, who was on this uh, kind of reality show, Man Versus Food, where he would eat these, these uh monumental amounts of like hot dogs or whatever but there was this one show and i i watched it maybe 2009 i i want to say and it was the kitchen sink ice cream sundae challenge where he had to eat an eight pound ice cream sundae and he gets in and starts working on this thing and i don't think anybody would say that an ice cream sundae is terrible you know but eight pounds of it you know it's like oh wow that's that's crazy but he got maybe a third of the way through and then he started like gagging and he literally turned green. Like the guy was going to throw up trying to finish this thing. And then he kind of stops the whole process. And he asks one of the waitresses at this, this restaurant where he's doing this challenge, can you bring me a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries? And she brought him the plate of French fries and he would have a couple of fries and then a scoop of ice cream sundae and a couple of fries and a scoop. And I mean, the plate of French fries was probably 1500 or 2000 calories by itself. And this is what I, I want people to understand. He would have failed eating the ice cream sundae without eating the French fries also. The salty, crunchy umami of the, of the French fries, it cut the, the, the kind of brain's perception of just this, this tsunami of sweet, you know, cold, creamy ice cream. So a lot of our meals we should construct the opposite of that, you know, like these really complex meals can be challenging. But interestingly, when people are kind of log jammed on protein, what I find is that like if they grilled up a little bit of shrimp, a little bit of chicken, and then maybe a couple of scrambled eggs, if they tried to get say like 40 grams of protein from shrimp or chicken or eggs, they would just be like, oh my God, I'm going to die. You know, I just can't eat it all. But if it's like 15 grams of protein from each one of these different sources, so you got like three eggs, you've got three ounces of shrimp, you have three ounces of chicken, people are really fired up for that. And so it takes a little bit of planning, but when you, when we say like bulk, bulk cook some food, which I, I think is really smart for meal prep and whatnot, cook several different proteins and then you can mix and match those. So this palate fatigue can be used to our, our benefit from making meals more simple so that we tend not to act, eat the way we would eat at a buffet where we've got like a, a bunch of different options. It can also be used as a beneficial tool when we're trying to get people to hit those protein minimums. And, and this is one of the insights we've had maybe in the last two years within our community is recommending that like at meals when people are really struggling to eat protein, um, do a couple of different protein sources and then they find that they they do really well with that and i'm not a fan of shakes but let's say the person does you know let's say they get 30 grams of protein from like chicken and shrimp and then they do 15 or 20 grams of protein from like a shake i'm kind of more okay with that because the bulk of the protein came from from real foods and they had to chew it and get the whole 
digestive process going on, but diversifying the proteins at a meal is really helpful to encourage people to hit that protein minimum. And then, you know, it, you mentioned that people say, well, I'm still hungry. If, if, the, if the conversation goes like this, I'm still hungry. And then you're like, well, eat some more protein. You're like, I don't want protein. Then it's like, you're not hungry. Then there's something else going on. You're bored or you're anxious, or you know, there's some other something. Cause if you were hungry, you'd be like, fuck it all. I'll, I'll have some more steak or shrimp or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. So that's where we start saying, okay, that's not really hunger. That's something else. So what are we going to do to kind of manage that thing? Yeah, that's great. That's that's exactly what I'm trying to teach my young boy at the moment because uh, awesome. he, he's he's there eating his, his tea. Let's say he's had uh, some sausage burger, whatever he's had, and then I'll say, "I want something else," and I'll say, "Well, are you hungry?" And I'll say, "Well, yeah, I'm still hungry." And I'll say, "Well, continue to eat your sausage and your burger then." But, oh no, I don't want that. So I say, "Well, there's something else going on there. Maybe change it up right. for like a different kind of protein, like you say, offer some fish and say." would you like some fish? And if it's still a no, it's like, well, you're not hungry, you know, and that's the kind of message right. even that you have to get across to some adults. So I'm trying to do it to my child, but get across to adults. And, and I love the way you say, mix it up because there's a classic dish that you go out, everybody goes out and has surf and turf and you surf and turf with the fish and the meat, you know, and you're mixing up the palate there and it, you tend to find that you get a lot more protein doing it that way. A lot of people who get stuck saying, well, I've had my two steaks, but, you know, I, I want something different. And you say, well, okay, why don't you try steaks and eggs or, or steaks and fish, like you say. And, and something that I've found, I know it's only, uh, it's quite, probably quite personal to me, N equals one, but I've found a glass of milk with uh, my dinner. So I'll have, let's mm. say, let's say I have a steak uh, and I'll think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm getting quite full. I'm getting quite bored of this steak. Then I have half a glass of milk and I'm, I'm back with it. And I think, oh yeah, I could just good. finish this. Yeah. It's just like, like you said, that change in, in palate. And I know people say maybe that doesn't work for them, but I find it's that mix it up. Like you say, the guy with the ice cream and, and the fries, just mix it up, put, put something different in there and it immediately changes, changes your perspective and, and you, can, you can go again if you're still hungry. Yeah. And, and one other tool that we've used is this thing I call the food matrix. And if people just search Rob Wolf food matrix, you can find a free downloadable PDF. And it's basically, you imagine like a list of proteins, you know, chicken, fish, beef, it's not comprehensive. Like it, it's just as a, as a guide. And then you have a list of vegetables and then cooking fats and then spices. So let's imagine chicken, broccoli, olive oil, garlic chicken, broccoli, olive oil, ginger, chicken, broccoli, olive oil, green curry, chicken, broccoli, olive oil, red curry. Each one of those is literally like a totally different meal. If you've got, you know, five meats, five vegetables, five cooking fats and five herbs and spices, you have like 225 different meals there. You know, you've never <laughs> yeah. seen the same, if you yeah. changed you know, one item each time, you have like 225 different meals. You have almost a year's worth of completely novel meals from that. So that food matrix is another interesting way to tweak things. And again, now what if we did, uh, you know, steak and shrimp with broccoli and some carrots in olive oil and then and then some people will even randomize this, like they'll have six spices and they'll literally have a, a dice there. They'll roll the dice and they're like, oh, it's it's chili today or it's garlic today. So there's even that like you're removing, you're creating some novelty where you don't even know what you're going to exactly have for dinner. You just have these raw 
materials on hand. And some people actually randomize it for each one. One dice roll for the protein, one dice roll for the veggie, one dice roll for the cooking fat, and then one for the, the seasoning. And it, it makes it fun. We do that with our kids frequently. We're like, okay, well, you guys are going to make dinner. And so we'll do the dice roll and it just comes out. And like, it is, it is literally like watching a bunch of drunk people at Vegas, like losing their money. <laughs> our kids are like, oh my God, it's chicken, you know? But it, it engages them, it gets them involved with it, and, and it's, it, it is really novel. Like, the, you don't know what you're going to get. And sometimes you get some dogs, you know, like the, the chicken, broccoli, and cinnamon meal is probably something the dog won't even eat. So you're like, okay, we're taking that off the list as an option. But, you know, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's something for people to think about, about mixing it all up and making sure. I mean, because a yeah. lot of people don't think about having two different kinds of protein on, on one single plate. You know, lots of people will say, yeah, two different kinds of vegetables or two or three or four different kinds of vegetables, but two different kinds of proteins really transforms a meal, doesn't it? It really it does. And, and also yeah. within your protein as well, something that I push a lot is the nutrient density in people. I think that a yep. lot of people don't actually realize that they are nutrient deficient, especially if they're eating a more of a processed uh, food diet or eating more processed foods and not cooking at home, cooking at home straight away, you're introducing more nutrient density into your food. Um, is it protein, like you say, is the big one and it keeps you satiated and helps you to not eat as much, but is nutrient density as well, something that people should be focusing on. Yeah. And you know, this is where, Something that looks kind of like a paleo type diet, like it, it's um, when, when we look back, like it, it, the, the most credible argument for like a paleo or kind of a paleo Mediterranean, Mediterranean type diet is not that our ancestors ate it. it. It's not that that's what cavemen did and we're still largely cavemen. It's really the nutrient density piece. If you start swapping in much in the way of grains, legumes, even, even dairy other than, than like hard cheeses and stuff like that fare pretty well, but um, it is the, it, leaner meats, seafood, fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices are like off the charts, new, nutrient dense. When you look at what you get per, per calorie, um, that is the most nutrient dense stuff. And so can you build, like I have, I have this kind of rubric of, uh, you know, if you eat three meals a day, seven days a week, that's 21 meals. Can we endeavor to do 19 meals that are kind of in this paleo Mediterranean genre and then two or three meals are kind of a little bit more, more relaxed, you know, and I, I think that magic happens with that. If we're operating on the flip side of that, where like 19 of our meals came out of a box or fast food that's really low quality and, and we're not doing, you can make fast food pretty, pretty nutrient dense with some, some smart ordering. But um, if 19 of the meals are kind of garbage and only two are good composition, we have a serious problem there. Like there's just no no two ways around that. But yeah, I think that um, the protein centricity, ironically, is where the nutrient density really takes off, particularly if you're sneaking in a little bit of seafood, maybe some organ meat here and there, but also leaning in really heavy on the herbs and spices. Uh, those are the most nutrient dense foods like uh, vitamins, minerals per calorie that we can get. We can't just eat like you know, cardamom pure, you know, we, we have to mix it with some other stuff, but it's a, it's a wonderful way to improve the flavor and also to improve the nutrient density of the meals. 
Yeah, as well, like salting meals and, and things like that as well. You get some nutrient density from using proper salts like pink Himalayan salts and rock salts and, right. and all sorts of things like that as well. I know um, electrolytes is another um, avenue that you've gone down in, in the uh, recent, uh, uh, and it's uh, you've built a company around helping people to get more electrolytes into their nutrition um, through drinks. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you've done that and why you did that. Yeah, you know, so I tend to feel best on a pretty low carb diet, like right around that ketogenic level. I've been eating more or less that way for 23 years. I have some gut issues, some autoimmune issues, kind of some blood sugar issues that I've tried doing the safe starches. I've tried doing like more katabin, you know, more sweet potatoes. And it just doesn't work well for me. Like I just don't feel that well from like a cognitive perspective and kind of a good blood sugar. But then the bugger is that I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, I, I used to do more like CrossFit type stuff. So the physical activity I tend to do is more glycolytic, kind of high intensity in nature. You know, I try to be very relaxed at jiu-jitsu. Like it, it, it's just a pretty, it's a pretty high intensity activity. And it, for the bulk of my career, I've just had this mismatch between the way that I fueled myself to generally feel good, but then I didn't really have that low gear for performance. And when I met these two guys, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of Keto Gains, these guys have an online community uh, on Facebook. It's got a couple of hundred thousand people and they move people through these adequate protein, nutrient dense, whole food based ketogenic diets and people just crush it. They have great body composition. They had a bunch of people competing in jujitsu at a pretty high level. And after I, I kind of stalked them and became friends with them, I was like, why are these people doing so well? And they, they, they pay as much attention to electrolytes, specifically sodium, as they do everything else, the protein, carbs, fat. And it, one thing that gets missed in this kind of low carb story, if you or I were placed on a medically supervised ketogenic diet for like epilepsy, that dietitian would make certain that we get at least five grams of sodium per day due to this process called the naturesis of fasting. When our blood sugar drops and our insulin levels drop, we tend to downregulate a hormone called aldosterone. And so we, we lose massive amounts of sodium and also a lot of water. This is one of the benefits of a low carb diet for somebody who's, who's maybe insulin resistant and carrying extra weight. Usually they're also hypertensive. And so their blood pressure will drop, but this can make you feel like garbage. Your, um, your physical capacity is really curtailed and diminished. And so what's working with these guys that I, I, once I got my electrolytes on point, I didn't really need to add a ton of extra carbs to have that low gear similar to, to, you know, what eating a more carb rich, rich diet will provide. And so that's where I figured out how important electrolytes, specifically sodium were. And we just, uh, we spun up a free downloadable guide. It, we called it, you know, keto aid and it's take this much table salt and this much um, potassium chloride, this much magnesium citrate, some lemon juice, stevia, shake it up, sweeten it, you know, and, and go. And within like six months, we had a half million downloads of this thing and people were going crazy on it. They're like, oh man, I really feel better. All these problems that folks were having on kind of lower carb diets were really dramatically improved, but it's not very convenient mixing that stuff up. Like people started mentioning going through 
you know, like they're traveling and TSA didn't like the fact that they had three bags of white powder in their carry-on bag and stuff like that. And so it was literally the, the folks that, that we were trying to serve, they're like, why don't you guys do some sort of a convenient, you know, option on this? And so that was really the genesis of Element. And that was three years ago. And I mean, it's just going great guns. But what we, what we really try to get folks to do is to get as much of their nutrition from whole foods as we can. So like on that sodium front, we remind people that things like pickles and olives and sardines and salami are really sodium rich and they carry a lot of other peripheral nutrition. So we try to focus on whole foods and particularly whole foods that are maybe a little sodium forward. And if they can address that, then yeah, maybe you need some element because you're, you're doing a long workout or something. You just benefit from being able to consume it in a beverage format. But we really try to focus on that nutrition side first. And it, it's, uh, it's really struck a chord with folks. You know, it, it, it's been remarkably successful. No, I like the way you've done it because there's lots of electrolyte drinks out there in the, uh, especially in the athletic space, you know, you can turn around mm -hmm. to anywhere you like, and there's all sorts of different kinds of brands out there, electrolytes, but then you actually look at a packet and same as processed food, and there's not really a great deal of electrolytes in there or, or very, right. very small amounts. Uh, and a lot of them uh, is just sugar. They end up just yep. piling, piling them out with sugar, calling them electrolytes. And that's not really what we say when we mean electrolytes, we don't mean sugar, we mean sodium, we mean magnesium, we, need, we mean potassium, and that's purely what your drinks are. And in your drinks, you also have a, a, quite a large amount of sodium as well, don't you? Quite, it's very, very salty. It's quite... To, to, yeah, to it's taste. one gram, yeah. 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 But, and you know, ironically, uh, we had someone, uh, one of our clients, go to the Gatorade Hall of Fame at the university, or, or Florida State University, and one of the original boxes of Gatorade is still like up on the wall in this display. And it had a gram of sodium per serving in its original iteration. And so in the beginning, it was very sodium forward. It had some sugar. There are situations where some sugar can facilitate the uptake of electrolytes. You don't need that under all circumstances. But over the course of time, what has happened is the, the sodium has decreased while the sugar content has dramatically increased. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't think people realize, just to touch on your other point that you said there, I don't think people realize that when they are changing their nutrition, lots of people go from changing their nutrition from a processed food diet into real foods. And, and just by doing that alone, then you are losing lots and lots of sodium, lots and lo loads of yeah. potassium, magnesium from that carb rich diet that you had. So immediately, that's where lots of people protect, probably heard of things like keto flu, um, and that's, yeah. that's what's happening. You're low on all of your electrolytes. You, you need to make sure all those are, are topped up. And just, just even for you, just your, your bog standard um, office worker, whoever it is, every day, you, you will find that if you have that keto flu, that's what you're missing. You're missing the sodium, the magnesium, potassium in your diet, but also athletes as well. I've worked with a lot of athletes who have not necessarily had the keto flu, because like you say, some things with athletes tend to work a little bit different. But then when they've introduced the sodium and the potassium and the magnesium drink that you do into their nutrition, they've found that their performance hasn't dipped or that their performance has all of a sudden just increased that, that one level. How can electrolyte drinks such as yourself help to increase performance? Well, it, you know, every single, and by the way, that was like the best tee up. That's like tee ball, like putting the baseball on the tee and just, you know, like hitting it from a stationary deal. But every single muscle contraction we have, every nerve impulse, 
is ultimately driven by sodium potassium pumps. Like if people think back about like their high school or college biology, or, or even if you want to jump on like Khan Academy and like how does sodium potassium pumps work, it is literally what makes life function. And if we end up, let's say you or I ended up unconscious and we arrived in the emergency room of a hospital. One of the first things that a doctor is going to do is look at our pH and look at our electrolytes, because if our pH is a little too high or a little too low, we'll get sick or we'll die. If our electrolytes are a little off, we can get sick and we can die. And so th those are arguably the most tightly regulated physiological processes we have. Like even our oxygen saturation can go up or down by orders of magnitude greater than, and we can survive relative to the, the changes in, in like uh, pH or electrolyte status. So everything that we do is tied into this. So if we get a little bit off in electrolytes, it shouldn't be surprising that we really notice this, this change in performance. And we've been able to do some interesting work where we kind of uh, peer behind the curtain of like uh, professional hockey players and, and whatnot. Some big guys are 90 to 100 kilograms. In the course of a game or a hard training session, these guys will lose four to five kilograms of water and 10 grams of sodium. And if they are following the standard dietary recommendations, which are to eat two grams of sodium or less per day, they're never going to get ahead of that. Like they're constantly going to be in this like mega depleted state. And interestingly, the signs and symptoms of, of hyponatremia, of low sodium status in particular, elevated heart rate, poor sleep, lethargy, fatigue, brain fog. And that's all the early stuff. Once we get to the point where people are cramping, they're really far down the, the electrolyte deficient state. So it, it's, um, you know, we are an electrochemical machine and part of the way that we, we generate energy, the primary way we generate energy is via these electrolytes. So if we think about ourselves as, as a battery, maybe isn't the right analogy, but an electrochemical machine and these electrolytes are a non-negotiable feature of that. If those electrochemical constituents are off, it's just not going to work optimally. So e even in, in a more mainstream circles, the American Council of Sports Medicine recommends for hard training athletes, and this will depend on size and uh, temperature and all that, but they'll recommend seven to 10 grams of sodium per day for hard training athletes. So this is not like a, a crazy recommendation, even within much more orthodox mainstream circles, it's understood that hard training athletes need a lot more uh, sodium in particular and like electrolytes in general. Yeah, I think uh, especially athletes need to realize that uh, the actual Krebs cycle, the, the process of making ATP just doesn't work without the electrolytes, without the sodium. Um, they're the yep. things that actually make it fire, aren't they? Um, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there a thing, as, can you get too many electrolytes and can you get too much salt or, or do we actually have a mechanism? Uh, I think I've heard people speak before about saying, look, we've got no mechanism for sugar. You can eat as much sugar as you possibly like, but we do actually have our own little salt mechanism. We do have our a little, little electrolyte mechanisms that stop us getting too much of each one. Yeah, you know, the kind of two, two pieces to that. One is you can get some GI upset from too much electrolytes, like I, a disaster pants, basically, like you can get some, some whoosh effect. Um, also, what we've noticed, particularly if people, even eating salty food, but 
when people are drinking, say like Element, most of our flavors have a sweet, you know, background. It's like raspberry or orange or something. And if you put it in about a liter, liter and a half of water, 32 ounces, it's, um, it's sweet. You barely even notice the salt until you hit this point where you take your next sip and you're like, man, that was pretty salty. And what, what our sense is on that is once people hit an adequate sodium intake, then their, their sense of salt taste really ramps up. And of all the different nutrients that we consume, the only micronutrient that we have a sense of taste for is sodium, is, is salt. You know, we, B vitamins, if you chew up B vitamins, they have a taste, but it, it's just this kind of, you know, it's unpleasant, but sweet, salty, sour umami are the, the constituents of our, our palate, you know, and so it's a really important piece and it actually circles back around to like nutrient density, protein leverage hypothesis, most sodium rich foods also tend to be protein rich foods. And so there's a tendency if we're under fueled in sodium, we tend to be under fueled in protein and base nutrients and whatnot. So our body is very, and, and most organisms are very finely tuned to sensing sodium in their, their diet and kind of seeking that out because we tend to just in a natural world, get a lot more potassium than we do sodium. And so one of the problems with highly processed foods, and you already alluded to this, this highly processed diet is super rich in sodium and depleted in potassium and magnesium. That's definitely a problem. But the flip side of that, when people eat a minimally processed diet, whether it's kind of vegan or Mediterranean or paleo or what have you, there's potassium and magnesium intake dramatically increases, which is arguably good. But if they don't stay ahead of that with sodium, they end up having really significant problems. And ironically, if we take in even a little bit too much sodium, within about 20 minutes, the kidneys sort that out. But then it also encourages the kidneys, if, they, if we receive adequate sodium, we will retain the calcium, magnesium, uh, uh, potassium that we need. Whereas with inadequate sodium, we will start dumping potassium, we'll start dumping magnesium to try to equilibrate because we want it like a, a three to two, three to one ratio in our bodies of sodium to potassium, you know, extracellular to, to intracellular. So then we end up in this really gnarly downward spiral where people are diuresing, they're shedding water, they're shedding potassium. And this is where folks can die from this. And the really uber terrible thing that, that occurs is when people are on that downward spiral, then they go grab plain water and just drink plain water on top of that because then it further dilutes everything. There's some old um, kind of folk wisdom, uh, it, definitely in the United States, I don't know if it, it existed in the, the UK, but for like youth sports, they used to recommend don't drink any water while training because it will lead to cramps. And it sounds kind of crazy, but if, if you're becoming dehydrated, at least you are not totally offsetting your normal sodium potassium ratios. You kind of are because we tend to excrete far more sodium than we do potassium. But if you take a, an individual that's training hard, hot environment, and they're losing lots of sodium and lots of water, and then they just drink water, they're going to severely worsen that, that sodium potassium imbalance. What, what is really, and, and some of the folk wisdom was take a salt tablet, chew on that salt tablet, and then sip on water to satiety. And that's actually a much 
much more sound recommendation. People used to not um, die in like military boot camps and, and uh, virtually every, you know, marathon, triathlon, somebody ends up hospitalized or, or ends up dying from hyponatremia because at the water stations, they really hammer the water and they don't get out ahead of the electrolytes. And most of the electrolytes that are available are really underpowered in sodium. Like people need a lot more sodium in those circumstances. Yeah, like you say, there's been a lot more deaths from uh, overhydration as there has been underhydration. Uh, well, not yep. just hydration, but water over drinking far too much water. You know, your body can compensate. If you're underhydrated, it tends to be able to compensate a lot more easier. And if you have far too much water in there, you're just diluting your system, as you say. And yep. uh, I often say to, to the athletes that I work with, think about it in the essence of hydration, our electrolytes and water is to stay cool. So if yep. you're doing a, a marathon or a triathlon, whatever you're doing, use the water to stay cool, use your water to sip if you want, but for your hydration, you need those electrolytes. That's, that's what's going to keep you going. That's what's going to get you over to, to the finish line. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. Where can um, people find the, uh, uh, follow along with you and find the element? And have you got your own website that you go on? Or? Yeah, yeah. So my personal website is robwolf.com, two, two Bs in the Rob. And then drinkelement.com is kind of the main element website. And we have a ton of material on fasting, intermittent fasting, some different um, sodium-related medical conditions like uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and breastfeeding and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like we've really learned a lot in the, the three, four years that we've been spinning up uh, elements. So you can find information about element, but also we... Um, we're just kind of geeked out on trying to encourage folks to get adequate electrolytes, mainly from diet, but then if they need something supplemental, um, we still provide this free downloadable guide. So if, uh, if people search um, element, L-M-N-T, home brew, they can find a free downloadable guide on that. We don't even ask you for your email on that. And then also if they want to buy the element, then they can do that too. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. I just want to say one thing to try and summarize up for uh, anybody listening there is that the human body is just an amazing machine. Like we've said today, it can, it can pick out what it wants. It knows exactly how to work if you give it the right things. And like we said, even with the electrolytes, it will search out what it wants. So if you're aiming for the real food, the things that our ancestors would recognize all the way back there in the, in the Paleolithic times, then it will search it out from that real food. That's why we don't jump into any camp like keto, carnivore, paleo, because you're restricting your body of potentially certain things that it wants. So if you can just get rid of all those processed foods that are out there now in all the supermarkets and all the places where they're trying to push marketing onto you and, and search out real foods, then your body will tell you what real foods it actually wants and what real foods are the best. And prioritize that protein. That's that's the way to go. That'll keep you satiated and that'll give you all the nutrient density and, and, and top up them electrolytes as well. So thank you very much for, for that today, Rob. That's been absolutely brilliant. And I thank you very much. Huge honor. It's, it, it's great to meet a uh, brother in arms uh, uh, on the other side of the world doing, doing similar work. It's always, it, it's honestly really cool because I, you know, I, I suspect you largely work from home. I have a little bit of a you know, a, a base of folks that I work with here in real life, but um, it's interesting where so much of our work is remote now. I'll just stop some days and I'm like, am I just 
spewing bullshit like it's all just <laughs> silly stuff and then you you bump into somebody that i assume you, you know we've been working in these uh parallel processes and it, it reminds me of like a shark and a dolphin like they have the same demands placed upon them and so the same kind of evolutionary convergence you know they one's a mammal one's a fish but man they're they're super similar in what they end up arriving at you know so it's kind of Kind of validating to get a little confirmation bias like that and meet someone like you so it's been a huge honor chatting with you yeah that's absolutely brilliant it's it's the same, same thought process over here so that's great is, is can people follow you on instagram or facebook have you got anything like that i i have uh accounts on there but i i um i generate material give it to my assistant and then she posts it because i i just uh i just can't do the interaction on social media right now like it's just too toxic it's too too much so the bulk of like the the interaction that i do is in the healthy rebellion which is our our kind of private network that that we have um maybe i'm thinking about spinning up a substack because i i do like interacting with folks but i just need an environment where they're just uh people are not profiteering from us trying to murder each other online like i i, I kind of flamed out on social media about a year ago and I've been noodling on where to go with that. So I may be spinning up a sub stack so we might might see that in the future. That's great. It'd be great to hear from you and, and great to follow along. And like I say, anybody who wants to learn any more information, let's uh, direct them to your website, drinkelement.com. So yep. um, hopefully everybody can go there. Thank you very much for your time today, Rob. Thank you. Take care. What a great guy Rob Wolf is. I really enjoyed chatting with him. It was a great talk and we touched on some really good subjects. Sleep is just as important as nutrition. And the electrolytes he does are absolutely great. Every time I need a little bit of a boost through the day, or especially during athletic performances, they really do help with energy. So like he says, go check him out, drinkelement.com. Element spelt L-M-N-T. Remember to check out our website at humannutritionlifestyle.com. We're on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and now Twitter. So come and find us there. Come and join along. All the links for those are on the website as well as the links for this podcast. So go back and listen to all of the episodes. They're all great. And if you want, give us a rate and a review. It helps others to find us. So I hope you enjoy these podcasts and continue. And next week, I've got a really, really good one with a dietitian and an ultra runner. She's both. She's a dietitian and an ultra runner. So that's great. And, and we touch on all the great subjects in that one. So stay tuned for that. But until then, be happy, be strong and thrive.